In today's episode of DPS, we're joined by Jacobin staff writer, Megan Day. She's going to make a spirited case for why the electioneering horse race headed towards 2020 is so important for socialists to participate in. We're going to talk about Bernie. We're going to talk about Warren. We're going to talk about Kamala Harris's recent announcement that she's ducking out of the Democratic Party primary. And over the course of chatting about this horse race, we're going to make a spirited defense of why it is that all this matters for building a democratic socialist future. Stay tuned. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Planet Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and we've got what looks like to be a very fun show on tap for today. My guest is returning to DPS, the myth, the legend, the socialist journalist extraordinaire, Megan Day. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That was a little off the cuff, but you deserve it. You've been writing your ass off. Your, the latest piece we're going to be talking about uh, in the episode today is called The Transatlantic Healthcare Struggle. You are a one-person, like, centrist, talking point bashing machine lately. Uh, yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, I've, I've been enjoying. I've been enjoying your your writing and your pieces. Your interventions have been really decisive, and you're getting a lot of well-earned notoriety. Um, seen you on Rising with Crystal Ball and Cigar. Really fantastic uh, appearance there. If listeners have not seen those appearances, you all should check them out. Unlike my videos, which are pulling a, a massive three to 400 views a piece, your latest from earlier this week, if I'm not mistaken, has like 180,000 views, which like. Absolutely nuts. It's I've never spoken to that many people at once on any platform. So thank you to the people of Rising. Yeah. Well, what does it say about our moment? I mean, this is a little off the cuff as well. What does it say about our moment that we have a very principled, like progressive lefty, even democratic socialist perspective that's, that gets aired out to like a, a quarter million people every single day. Not just that, but the comments are like so uniformly positive. I mean, I, maybe YouTube works different algorithmically, but it's shocking after my experience in the Twitter trenches to be on YouTube where just comment after comment. Some of them, maybe some of these people seem a bit like cranks or whatever, but for the most part, they're just like, People who seem to come out of nowhere who are just like eating up these views, these deeply held views that people in our movement have had for years and have been honing talking points and ways to argue on and we're putting them out there. And then all these people on YouTube are just like totally into it. It's really incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, you have to pinch yourself to think about our, our distance of travel over the past year or two. Um, it's somewhat inevitable given the popularity of Bernie Sanders and the, and the way that that campaign has uh, really forced a number of topics that we've been trying to get on the agenda for quite some time. In that sense, we're, we are just a little bit behind the, the UK left, the British left, where we are seeing a Jeremy Corbyn government on the brink, question mark. I think he's going to win. I'll say it. I'm just going to put it out there. I think he's going to win. Uh, the polls are trending in his direction. The polls are notoriously off by by many uh, points it's a it's going to be a, uh, a a district by district battle there of course they have the parliamentary system it's not uh, even as flawed as as our system here uh, but it has its own uh, intricacies that i don't entirely understand we're gonna have james meadway on the show for you listeners out there look forward to that next week james meadway is the former economic advisor to the shadow chancellor 
uh, John McDonald. He's going to break all of that down for you all. We'll, we'll be about a week out from the election at that point. But my point, my original point was that the UK left is somewhat ahead of us in this respect. And so far as their left-wing socialist commentators have been in the mainstream for quite some time now. It, it's, it's not unusual to see a Grace Blakely or an Ash Sarkar from Novara on Channel 4 News or Question Time for that matter. It's really great to see you out there getting much more exposure. Well, thanks. And I mean, I actually look to them, these British commentators, I, I definitely look to them as inspiration because you're right. They definitely are. I, it's on the, in the, on the one hand, it's that the British media is more receptive to having them on to share their perspective. But on the other hand, there's a, there's a quite a, like an ambitious spirit in the British left to like get out there in on the television and and give speeches and otherwise be extraordinarily visible. I find that really inspiring because obviously in the American left, we've been used to marginalization for so long that it's actually become like a token of authenticity. So there seems to be a discourse in the US around like, if you appear on television in a suit, let's say you're Bhaskar Sankara doing this, you know, like two years ago, appearing on television in a suit, heaven forbid, then, you know, you must be some kind of sellout or you have your grifter, or you have some sort of secret agenda. I mean, we really need to be getting out there. We need to be taking up, taking people up on their offers. And not when I say we, I don't just mean people like me, but I also mean, you know, activists in their local context need to be going on local news and, and so on, writing op-eds to the paper, basically just putting ourselves out there and, and shedding that sort of, um, you know, safe, uh, that our, our safe little cocoon of marginality that people have become accustomed to on the American left. Oh, and before I move on, I wanted to say this because I think this is funny in terms of whether or not Jeremy Corbyn will will win. I don't know. Obviously, I really want him to win. But I will say that last time I was on this show with you, you were like, AOC is going to endorse Bernie Sanders. And I was like, drop it, Adam. It's not possible. Yes. It's not hope. <laughs> and you know what? You were right. And you had your optimism buoyed me in that moment. And so I'm going to take a cue from the last go around. And, and hopefully your optimism is, uh, is well calibrated in this situation as well. Fingers crossed. Well, I am, I am nothing if not like horrendously overly optimistic in these situations. Sometimes it pays off. Sometimes it pays off. I mean, I, we could, we could go into depth about AOC and maybe we should later in the episode, but we have a lot more to talk about more newsy stuff. Breaking news here. I don't get to do this very often. I do a weekly show and sometimes it's it's over a week before my recorded interviews uh, hit the airwaves, but we're going to do this today. Uh, Kamala Harris is out. I'm sure you have a lot to say about this. Uh, we've only had uh, around 24 hours to react. What do you make of this? Are, are we to, to claim victory as a progressive left that her, her campaign was like more or less DOA? I mean, it's important to remember, as I was reminded earlier today when I was reading up on this, she had a 20,000 person event to kick off her campaign. And so, you know, the excitement was there for a very brief time, but she has since tanked. We could give a lot of credit <laughs> to Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard just knifed her on live television. And those punches, all that, all that, all that like fitness training really paid <laughs> off, you know? But uh, we'll shout out Tulsi for the Tulsi bros out there. I'm sure they're out. There. I mean, they're everywhere. They're always out there. But um, if I haven't scared them away yet, what do you make of Kamala bowing out at this point? 
Well, I got to say, you know, speaking of my sort of <laughs> doom and doom and gloom, my tendency toward pessimism or whatever, I was convinced this time last year that we would see basically a two-way race between Kamala and Bernie and that Kamala would possibly kick Bernie's ass. I mean, that was like a thought that was absolutely running through my mind. And I'm it, to some extent, I can be um, forgiven for this because I do live in the Bay Area, which is Kamala's backyard. And so I've been familiar with like a certain amount of excitement and enthusiasm around her just from the local context. And I just figured that would carry. And, you know, I remember also she had these like incredible moments during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. I don't know if you recall, but she got these like incredible sound bites just being like, this sort of tough on crime prosecutor in her really came out when she was trying to like take Kavanaugh to task. And I figured, oh my God, people are going to eat this up. She's setting herself up for success. And obviously I did not want that. I think that Kamala Harris is like a, basically a third way Democrat who's uh, attempting to do a pantomime of progressivism. Um, and it's very awkward <laughs> to watch. Um, but yeah, I've been, I've been in really surprised, frankly, by how poorly her campaign has gone. I figured she was teed up. Um, as for what to make of it, I mean, we can't discount the fact that she obviously had a really poorly managed campaign. I mean, not everything is just strictly political. Sometimes you just inherit all of the complete idiots who ran Hillary Clinton's campaign because you think that that's the smart thing to do. And you end up with a bunch of dumb lanyards telling you to do stupid things and you listen to them and then your campaign tanks. Now, I guess there is a politics to that because in order to hire all those people from the Hillary Clinton campaign, you have to have a, a fundamentally flawed understanding of what happened in 2016, right? You have to have completely missed the fact that those people who were posturing as experts absolutely dropped the ball and handed us Donald Trump. Um, but, you know, there's a broader political context as well beyond just a mismanaged campaign. And that would be that Kamala Harris um, made a calculated decision early in her career to establish herself uh, politically as a tough on crime law and order Democrat and a, a prosecutor and not a progressive prosecutor. She, in fact, there wasn't such a thing as a progressive prosecutor back then. When she says that, oh, I was a progressive prosecutor, she's taking a term that's basically been coined in the era of Larry Krasner and retroactively trying to apply it to herself. There was no movement for progressive prosecution back when she was the attorney general of, of or the, uh, the DA of San Francisco or the attorney general of California. Um, you know, she was obviously Obviously, uh, lock, locking people up for petty crimes on a regular basis. And that was what she considered to be her job. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that she was asked about marijuana legalization and she actually laughed at the reporter who asked her the question. Um, you know, she locked up tons of black men on marijuana possession charges in California. And uh, that seemed to be completely perfectly fine for her. Like it was a smart way for her to build her career. And then Black Lives Matter happened. I don't know. I, I one what it would be like to be Kamala Harris while Black Lives Matter is happening, knowing that you have these aspirations to ascend to the heights of political power in the United States. And suddenly, um, you know, criminal justice reform is the sort of progressive cause celebre. I'm sure that it was pretty alarming for her, right? But she didn't really come up with a plan for what to do about it. I mean, she must have been so naive, right, that she was going to run and it wasn't going to uh, become a big issue. Then again, I, I can't falter too much because like I said, I also thought that she had a pretty good chance. But we have to admit at this point that, you know, 
her, it was primarily her prosecutor background that exposed her as a hypocrite and made people feel uh, kind of gross about her. She was really, she needed, she needed like a, the support of young centrists with progressive social ideas, sort of like, you know, f- uh, fiscally centrist, socially liberal. She needed those people to be in her corner and she could not get enough of them. And it was because those Kamala is a cop memes were absolutely everywhere. I'm not just talking on Twitter. I'm talking about in the world. I've been canvassing for Bernie and I have spoken to working class black people. I, you know, obviously I'm not talking to them about Kamala Harris and there to talk about Bernie Sanders and people will independently bring up to me, like, by the way, since we're talking about the election, Kamala Harris is a goddamn cop. And like she <laughs> locked black people up and then she bragged about smoking weed in college. And I don't like her. Like those independently bring that up to me. It was, it was, it was, it was massively influential. Um, and you know, people in the Kamala universe have said that it's completely unfair, but is it really unfair? I mean, she, that, that is how she built her career. She built her career as a, as, as being tough on crime. And now, you know, these are the sort of, that's, these are the fruits of, of that labor. And it turns out that they're bitter fruits. That's right. That's right. Well, I I mean, I was spiking the football earlier for my successful prognostication about the AOC endorsement, but I have to say on February on this very show, I was talking to Daniel Marins, Huffington Poe politics reporter on that electoral politics beat. And we were both horrifically wrong. And I texted him when I found out Kamala was out and I said, well, you got me because he had, he had uh, Gillibrand making it to the final three. And I had Harris, of course. I thought it'd be Bernie Biden Harris. So I was like you. I mean, I really thought that these Obama alums would fall in line behind her and uh, and, and and take her to to the you know astroturf this thing all the way to the to the final three, uh, as they have done with other candidates in the past. But they have since flocked to to Buttigieg. Uh, Buttigieg, yeah. of course, is notoriously horrendous with uh, the black pop. I mean, even worse than Kamala, if you can imagine. <laughs> with African Americans, yeah. so uh, yeah. you know there doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be he doesn't have a lot of legs there uh, without the black vote in you know after um, after New Hampshire and Iowa for sure not Super Tuesday he'll, he'll fall flat on Super Tuesday is what I'm saying well, we can get past Buddha Judge we've got Bloomberg in the race now who is the ideal candidate for Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't get any better than that as far as a match off. A I, match well, I, well, I welcome Bloomberg. Of course, this might turn into one of those things where you like you well, whatever Hillary Clinton, like welcoming Donald Trump as a sort of Pied Piper. And then look what happens. So I may be eating my words. But at the moment, I, I welcome Bloomberg because it really heightens the contradictions, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, this guy's, I mean, as far as general appeal, you know, he's, he's kind of, he has like a crypt keeper vibe, you know, plus like the Mr. Burns <laughs> evil billionaire. It just doesn't have a whole lot going for him. He's not particularly charismatic. I mean, that that's an understatement. He's, he's just, just he's negative charisma. Um, he just has yeah. billions of dollars to buy himself an election. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, Warren's recent nosedive. There's a lot to be said about this. And there's, there's a a narrative that has emerged in the mainstream press that it was her, her dogged defense of Medicare for all early on that doomed her, uh, you know, with her coalition, her coalition primarily made up of professional managerial class types who have themselves already healthcare, you know, plans that they like, and they got nervous about, uh, her defense of Medicare for all. Um, this doesn't I, read, I don't does know. it? It doesn't doesn't read right because, okay, so Warren's 
rise in the polls doesn't coincide with her either going all in or retreating from Medicare for all. Her rise in the polls coincides with um, a sort of like orgy of enthusiasm from establishment types about Elizabeth Warren that corresponds directly to uh, like hysterical fear of Bernie Sanders, basically. Um, so people and, and I and I say this not to imply that Elizabeth Warren is herself some sort of like, like, uh, like crypto neoliberal or whatever, which I'm not going to say either way. I mean, there's like a lot of you know, people who have their guesses about what's in her heart. But my point is that even people, even people who are significantly to Elizabeth Warren's right, and I do believe that that, that is a thing, you know, people like CAP or whatever, um, were and like the third way foundation were like excited, expressing openly expressing enthusiasm about Elizabeth Warren's campaign. And there's only one way to explain that these are people who had previously considered her to be an adversary and are on the record as being, you know, um, having an adversarial relationship to her, they switch. And there's only one explanation for that, which is that they see her as a possible block to Bernie Sanders. And I think that that was accurate. So um, that is the explanation for why Elizabeth Warren starts to rise in the polls. Um, you know, media establishment types often have a lot of similar, have a lot of overlap with these, with these groups um, and with the uh, forces that are behind these groups, the sort of like capitalist class forces that fund them. And so there was a concerted effort, I think, to elevate Elizabeth Warren and that, um, combined with some of her genuinely positive qualities, such as aspects of her uh, platform that, <laughs> to me, the best ones are the ones that, you know, are basically lifted from Bernie Sanders's platform, but still those are positive, right? So that combination of uh, media attention and, you know, the actual positive elements of her platform started to cause uh, an Elizabeth Warren surge to happen. And then the surge actually falls apart. It starts to unravel when she backs away from Medicare for all, not when she goes further into Medicare for all. So I don't buy this narrative that like Medicare for all doomed her. I do think it's interesting that it's, there are people in her coalition who probably don't necessarily feel that they personally have a need for Medicare for all and are a little bit skittish about it. But her co coalition's broader than that, right? I think that actually what really has, has doomed her is the idea that she can't necessarily be trusted to have a strong stance on anything. And I think that she hammered that nail into her own coffin by w walking back her M4A Commitment so visibly. And there was just this string of events that happened that made her seem extraordinarily non-committal. Like she was like, you know, just kind of vaguely saying, I'm for it, Medicare for all. I think it's, you know, a great framework and horizon and all these other kinds of vague words. And like, if you have questions about the details, ask Bernie Sanders. She was doing fine when that's what she was saying. Um, what really un started to undo her, and I don't want to say that say that too finally, because honestly, who knows? I think it's been demonstrated already in this conversation that neither you nor I know what's going to happen in the future, right? Maybe she could make a comeback. But it, right now, we have to acknowledge that she's sinking in the polls compared to where she was just like a month or six weeks ago. And it, it's, it's obviously because she released this... Um, she had this horrible debate performance where Amy Klobuchar um, was like, you are so dishonest, you will not say that Medicare for all is going to raise taxes on the middle class. And she repeated this canned line over and over again. And it was really embarrassing for her. I would never, you know, I would never pass anything that raises taxes on the middle class. And then it turns to Bernie and he's like, yeah, your taxes are going to go up and your overall costs are going to go down. And Klobuchar was like, thank you, Senator Sanders. And like everybody, you know, left and right was like on board with the Klobuchar Sanders side of that, of that 
that debate, right? She just looked very noncommittal and then she got spooked and then she released this um, financing plan that was supposed to avoid the idea that she would raise middle class taxes, but really it was extraordinarily regressive because it imposed a flat tax on employers and it even had, you know, some ramifications in that it could possibly disincentivize employers from having full-time employees, causing them to shunt employees into independent contractor status in order to avoid paying into this. And it was all just a complete mess. And then she came out with her transition plan, which is that well, it's not a transition plan, it's a phase-in plan, which is that she's going to fight for the public option first in her first year in office. And then she'll win that and it'll just be like super easy. And then once she wins it, she'll use the quote unquote momentum from that fight to muscle through Medicare for all. And literally nobody believes that. Nobody thinks that that's how that's going to happen. Everybody knows that given the fight over the ACA, the fight for a public option will be absolutely bloody. And we could really deplete our movement's energy in the course of that fight. And if you're going to have a big fight like that, and if you have a big movement primed to fight, why would you not fight for Medicare for all? The only explanation is that you have gotten spooked by everything that's happened in the past month and all the you know people being mean to you on the debate stage and so on. And you've decided to walk it back. And I just was so it was plain as day. Everyone just saw plain as day that she was triangulating and she was seeking out new positions and new lanes to occupy. And I think that's when her support really started to plummet, to be honest with you. And I did have the experience over Thanksgiving of speaking with some you know, people, uh, you know, in my sort of family network who are like less politically involved and they're just sense about Elizabeth Warren. These are not politically clued in people, but their sense about Elizabeth Warren was that she was kind of wishy-washy. Right. And it was all totally founded on the, th- the events that had happened in the six weeks prior. So that has to be the explanation for the end of the Warren surge, in my opinion. Right. You can see her chasing, you know, opinion polls and, and, and looking at, you know, cross tabs and things like that in order to judge, you know, well, what should I argue for here? Getting nervous, backtracking on previous statements. I mean, this this reads crystal clear to, to, to what we call to people that I like to call normies, people for whom politics is not a hobby. <laughs> like People like us, people like my listen, you, dear listener, are not a normie in that respect. Perhaps you're a normie in other respects, but not that one. Uh, but the normies see right through, you know, disingenuousness that if, if they have anything, you know, it's, it's a, it's just a built in bullshit detector. And we've seen, you know, her, her backtrack many times. Like we saw Kamala months ago, which, uh, sort of precipitated her decline. Now the difference has been pointed out by others between Harris and Warren right now is that Warren still has quite a bit of cash. She can ride this thing out for, for, for Uh quite some time. She'll make it uh, to the convention. Now, what her numbers will be at that point, you know, it's, it's nobody knows. Um, and what the, what the strategy might be going, going forward. Excuse me. Um, she I, could be set for another rise. I don't know. I can't, I, 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 this is my first rodeo. Um, well, it's my second rodeo. I was deeply invested in the, in the 2016 primary and general election. Um, but I wasn't nearly as like, smart as I am now, because that election really electrified my brain and turned me into like a committed lifelong socialist. And so now I have three years of, of, of training, right, just like mulling over all of the sort of abstract versions of the arguments about how various pressures come to bear on state actors and how the capitalist class, you know, um, inserts itself into the political process and so on. So now this is my first, this is my first real rodeo as like a, a, a socialist, 
a real one, right? One who's who's uh, You're far too humble. But, but I hear you. The, the, the horse race takes the horse race has a pretty steep learning curve, doesn't it? And my myself sort of trained in, trained in dusty books feel the same way with with respect to this primary. And I think it's been an education for all of us. And I really look forward to like our future prospects as a left going forward having built the resources during this moment. You know, there are a lot of my listeners out there are sick and tired of the horse race. I have to hear about it a lot. A lot of a lot of patrons walk away because they're tired of me talking about the horse race. And I try to make the case that like this is all organically intertwined in the larger, more like theoretical strategic discussions that they probably prefer to be had on Dead Bonnet Society. Um it is and there's something you can't learn like the the amount of learning that you get just following something beat by beat is completely unparalleled if you're just, you know, reading and studying about it in the abstract. And like another example would be that is uh, of that would be is like in DSA I see the sort of internationalist consciousness of people in DSA growing including myself when new things unfold right before your very eyes. So one example would be the coup in Bolivia. Like we can sit around and watch the Battle of Chile or whatever and like read about Allende all we want. And we do. But when you watch something happening right before your eyes and you're watching all of the media spin and seeing all of the forces arrange themselves in in precisely the way that you would have expected, the amount of internalization that that I guess, prompts is completely unparalleled. I mean, it's really just experiential learning about politics. And that's why the horse race stuff is actually useful for socialists to pay attention to. If you can sink your teeth into it, it takes, it takes a little while to get like, you know, to get that level of like, um, that the taste for the taste for red meat, you know what I mean? But once you do <laughs> the and taste you get for into blood, it, a delicious horse taste, race blood. Yes. Right. So, but once you do like you will learn, this is a crash course. This is a crash course in how absolutely perverse our political system is and how formidable our enemies are and how idiotic the political allies conscripted by our very smart enemies are right. Like it's all right laid out in front of you every single day. Um, you're just watching this drama unfold that tends to confirm a lot of things that you perhaps, uh, you know, intuitions that you develop during your socialist education in the abstract, but also can undermine them and can also like uh, introduce nuance and uh, change the way that you think about politics. So I'm a huge advocate for horse race politics um, from a socialist perspective. And the horse, if you're paying attention to horse race politics and you're not a socialist, the chances are that you are probably extremely boring and wrong. But I think socialists should pay attention. Pardon this brief interruption, folks. I hope you all are enjoying my chat with Megan Day very much. She is a wealth of information. I had a lot of fun with this one. But I have a couple quick announcements. Now, I don't do this very often, but I need to start doing it more regularly. DPS is on social media. Surprise, surprise. Who would have thought? So if you are not following us on Twitter, if you haven't liked the page on Facebook, why not give it a shot? You can find us on Twitter at Dead Pundits. I do not recommend being on Twitter, folks. I just want to be very clear about this. This is an endorsement of the DPS Twitter feed. This is not an endorsement of Twitter. Log off, sign off, throw your computer and your smartphone into the woods and walk away. But if you do find yourself on Twitter, on social media, check us out on Facebook as well. You can just search for Dead Pundit Society. You'll find our page. Give it a like and a follow. And again, if you're on Twitter, you can find us at Dead Pundits. Dead Pundits, plural. We make various announcements there. We'll solicit questions. We'll talk to you about some upcoming episodes and announce episodes as they are released. So uh, 
you're not going to want to miss that. I also try to share some of the most important articles and essays and book announcements and all that, that type of stuff as well. Additionally, this is the second episode that we're releasing of DPS this week, and typically this would be a B-side, which means it would go behind a paywall and only the 350 to 400 patrons of DPS would be able to listen to it. And that would be a good business decision, folks, because people like to pay for things that are exclusive. People don't like to pay for things that they can get for free. But this is not a business enterprise. This is a political podcast. And I did not start this podcast to slap all of my meaningful and excellent content from these amazing guests that I'm lucky to have on behind a paywall. But in order to make this terrible business decision work, I need your help. So if you're enjoying what you're hearing on DPS today, if you listen to DPS with, on any regular basis, with any regularity, check out patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a supporter today. I know there are a tremendous amount of political projects that require your attention and deserve your support, but I do want to remind you that this project cannot go on without the generous support of its listeners. Like many other new media projects out there, we've taken a dip in funding over the past few months, and I suspect it's probably because people are reallocating their money to much more important projects like, you know, say, getting Bernie Sanders elected to the presidency. And I support that. I myself make regular contributions to the Bernie Sanders campaign and to other political organizations and political and new media projects myself. But if you have disposable income, if, you, if you're just rolling in cash, or if you have any cash on hand that isn't immediately sucked up by the extractive economy, don't forget about your friends over here at DPS. Patreon.com slash deadpundits. Thanks, everybody, for your support. Enjoy the rest of my interview with Megan Day. That's right. It's, it's interesting. I've said this on previous shows, and I think it, it may play out to be correct. There's another big, big, uh, big prognostication here. Uh, somebody write this down and check me on it five years on. But it was interesting to see, you know, the likes of Dennis Kucinich and Michael Moore really struggle in on the terrain of the horse race, say back in 2000, 2004. Um, they were really foreigners in that in that land of in horse race land. And when they would try to enter it, they would just be, you know, largely incoherent in the broader conversation. And and now, I mean, you might argue that I think it's clear anyway that the progressives are are very much at home in the horse race mm. and that democratic socialists aren't quite there yet. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that if we continue on this trajectory, we might, we might like the Corbinites in Britain, we might find ourselves very at home and very comfortable and cozy talking about horse race style topics, you know, actionable, pragmatic policies, talking points that appeal to to average Americans, you know, to any the kind of doorstep conversations that you you can have with anybody's grandmother, you know, very comfortably, and 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 have those be very principled democratic socialist talking points. It's it's a right. strange time, right? It's absolutely is. So that's a great transition to the piece that you've recently, uh, I think, it came out today. That is Tuesday. This will be coming out later in the week. Um, it's called the Transatlantic Healthcare Struggle, and we were talking off air briefly before we began our chat. It's kind of strange that a piece like this one has not yet been written, but it doesn't seem that it has been, at least not from our side of the Atlantic. A well, lot- that's why you 
excited to write it, right? It's like, I can't, this happens to me constantly. This is what happens when you have a relatively paltry left-wing media is that there are things that are obvious to you, maybe things that have been obvious to you for a while, and you just assume that there have got to be pieces out there written about them. And then you realize, you wake up and you look in the mirror one day and you go, oh shit, I have to write that. Yeah. Like, so I, <laughs> if the document doesn't publish yeah. it, it doesn't get published, yeah. you know? There's nobody, uh, there's no nobody but us at this point, you know, it's kind of, a, it's, it's an exciting and, and uh, also scary time. But for those of you who, who aren't kind of glued to the British media right now around the election, the, the coming election, uh, Jeremy Corbyn had a brilliant, I mean, just amazing expose about Boris Johnson's um, duplicitousness regarding, you know, his his promises not to sell off the National Health Service, their prized NHS to American uh, healthcare companies and to sort of Americanize their their healthcare system in, in a way that we're all way too familiar with over here. And uh, he found a smoking gun, revealed a memo stating that uh, in, in private, he's making promises that totally contradict his public statements. As you trace in your piece here on Jackman, I'll put that in the show notes for folks. Their struggle is our struggle. We are, we're kind of the, the nightmare scenario for them to look forward to should, should Boris Johnson, uh, you know, retain power, but, um, our struggle is their struggle in many ways. And it's really exciting, exciting to see how these, these are lining up. Talk to us about that transatlantic healthcare struggle. Well, this is exactly what I was talking about a moment ago. In the abstract, many socialists will tell you their struggle is our struggle, right? That, that's like an axiom. It's a dogma that we have that we that we have drilled into us by the socialists who were there before us. And it's, it's completely right, you know, but it's until you see it up close and personal um, in real time, it's it's hard to understand what that actually means. So here is a perfect encapsulation of the the idea that their struggle is our struggle, that we have shared struggles against the capitalist class that transcend national borders, and that we have to have solidarity with each other in the fight. So basically, the story goes like this. Boris Johnson has made comments throughout his career indicating that he would like to privatize the NHS. I think in... Um, 1995, he like penned an op-ed where he was like, people should have to pay for services so that they will value them more. And it was this bizarre means testy kind of almost Pete Buttigieg style um, argument against having a cost free NHS. And that was obviously going to open the door, obviously, to privatization. Right. Um and then in 2002, these are just examples. There are examples from throughout his career. But in 2002, he stood, you know, in parliament and said something to the effect of like, you know, the, the chancellor wants you to think that there's only one model that would work for an NHS. But I'm here to tell you that there are other models that are not so monolithic and not so monopolistic and not so top down using all this negative language to refer to a universal public health care program that is cost free. Right. Um, and and. So everybody knows that Boris Johnson throughout his career has indicated that he would like to sell off the NHS and not, not just that, but he's staffed his, uh, you know, brand new uh, cabinet with people who've been affiliated with groups that have actually published radical manifestos about privatizing the NHS. So this is obvious to all, but he's swearing up and down that he would never lay a finger on the NHS because this is a third rail in British politics. Of course, the reason that it's a third rail in British politics is because universal social programs that decommodify and provision basic essential 
goods and turn them into rights as opposed to commodities are extraordinarily popular across political lines. And they have built in constituencies. There's an article that I love in Jacobin that I refer to constantly by Robbie Nelson called Engines of Solidarity. And a lot of it is actually about the NHS. And the idea is that these programs actually are engines of solidarity. They produce constituencies that are willing to fight for them because people come to rely on them and come to understand the value of them across political lines. So it's a third rail in British politics. You cannot talk about privatizing the NHS. At the same time, you have Boris Johnson very much would like to do exactly that. And that is absolutely the Tory project. Um, so he's been swearing that he would never do such a thing. Um, Jeremy Corbyn knew about the existence of some talks between uh, the Tory government, um, both both pre-Johnson and recently, I think, but in any case, the Tories and Donald Trump have been meeting to uh, talk about what trade is going to look like post-Brexit under a Tory government. And um, Corbyn knew about the existence of these talks, but was unable to get his hands on unredacted copies. I don't know how he got a hold of them. I saw some reports that maybe it was Reddit and was involved in maybe Twitter. I don't know. Some like internet related stuff may have been involved in him getting a hold of these, but these are uncensored documents that demonstrate very clearly that, in fact, Boris Johnson and the Tories and the whole sort of apparatus um, on that side of, of the aisle in Britain is uh, very much interested in putting the NHS on the table post-Brexit when it comes to doing trade with the United States. So that means that American healthcare companies, including me- American pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, and medical device companies, and so on, would potentially have access to British healthcare markets. Now, right now, there aren't really British healthcare markets. Like there's the NHS has been somewhat privatized and marketized. So there's been some there's been some introduction of markets. But this whole plan is to bust it wide open, just break it wide open and basically create a gold rush. And the people who are going to come flooding in are the people on the globe who are the most powerful in healthcare. And those are American private healthcare firms, right, who are looking for opportunities for market expansion. Um, So Jeremy Corbyn holds up this dossier and it's like 400 and something pages. And he's like, like, how do you like that, Boris Johnson? It's right here. And of course, Boris Johnson is just swearing that the documents don't say what they clearly do say. And this has become the sort of referendum in the upcoming UK election, which is slated for very soon, less than two weeks. So their upcoming election is Corbyn versus Johnson. Do you want a public NHS or do you want to privatize the NHS? Now, wait a we minute. You've got Joe it. Swenson in there who who's got, you know, a, a lot of uh, labor policies that she endorses, uh, you know, on the stump and then goes into government and, and, and backs her Tories, uh, her Tory coalition partners, you know, her, her would be Tory, Tory coalition partners. There's nothing that she won't, nobody and nothing that she won't sell out for victory is really the, uh, the bottom line. And that sells people love that shit. No, they don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the absolute ruthlessness and complete hollow political triangulation. That's what really excites people. That's what they want to see in a politician. But yeah, so so the point that I'm sort of winding around to is that we also have an election coming up in the United States. And as you have seen from the 
I mean, well, there were exit polls in the 2018 midterms that asked people what their number one issue was. And it was healthcare, healthcare, healthcare every time. Same with 2016. And then you look at the Democratic Party debates and it's like they can't stop talking about healthcare. Healthcare is is it's not the only issue in American politics. And it's not quite as acute, I guess, as what's happening in the UK. But this the Democratic Party primary has become in large part a referendum on Medicare for all. And that would cease if Bernie were not the nominee. We would it would be a referendum on some other shit who even knows honestly depending on who the nominee is could be a very boring and uh sad spectacle but if bernie if it were bernie versus trump it would absolutely be a referendum on health care as well so we've got two political processes unfolding in two separate countries where health care is in the dominant issue and we actually have the exact same adversary in both cases which is the american private health care firms and we have a political coalition the tory government and the donald trump administration that are working together in order to appease that common capitalist interest the american private health care corporations so this is the actual literalization of their struggle is our struggle it's not abstract it's like we want to we in the United States who are advocates of Medicare for all, we want Corbyn to win. We want the NHS to be protected because we do not want our own adversaries to be growing stronger by expanding into British healthcare markets, which would only make them more capable of defeating and crushing us, right? Yeah. I bring Joe Swenson in not only because uh, she's fun to beat up on, but because if you, if you if you throw her into the mix and her Lib Dems into the mix – uh, you know, travesty that that party is these days and they always have been, but it's just, it's just deplorable at this point. Uh, you have a, a nice kind of allegory for the democratic party primary race because Joe Swenson. I mean, the Lib Dems I've, I've, I've made this, you know, argument before. I'm sure I'm not the first, but you know, mash up labor and the Lib Dems and you've got the democratic party. It's just like, uh-huh. you know, in the United States, those types of folks, you know, touting those strategies, those ideologies uh, sit very, you know, uneasily inside the same party or or adjacent to it, as many Bernie Kratz uh, do without there being any other you know, option. There's no Labor Party here. There's no uh, left party, no socialist party. So we're stuck uh, in the same yeah, wagon. Stuck with each. I do not. I mean, obviously, it's it's a very unpleasant situation because you constantly have to be involved in, 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 in intra party disputes. Intra or inter? What would it be the appropriate intra? intra? I believe only because I love okay, them so much. About- <laughs> I use the word <laughs> right. often. Yeah. yeah. Intra-party disputes. So um, the Democratic Party, the real sort of people will tell you we want unity, unity in the Democratic Party. We have to come together to defeat Donald Trump, and it's just not possible for us to have unity within the Democratic Party, considering that. The Democratic Party is a cross-class coalition that contains people and forces that are diametrically opposed to each other. The Democratic Party receives a ton of money from the health insurance industry. The Democratic Party also has the lion's share of people who are uninsured and underinsured in this country within its base. So this is it's not, you know, you're demanding unity. You're demanding a behavior that resembles unity in a party that is disunified by its very nature, nature and 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 specifically disunified along class lines. Um, you know, I wish that we had a multi-party democracy like they have in the UK so that we could actually, you know, separate things out a little bit more and then we wouldn't have to focus quite as much on intra-party disputes. But given that this is the situation that we're in, my 
instinct and in fact strategy is to heighten those contradictions and to go ahead and have those intra-party disputes play out publicly for all to see and participate in and learn from so that we can build some kind of force that can ultimately oust either oust the um you know, capitalist class for the Democratic Party or barring that, and I think that's quite unlikely, eventually sow the seeds for a new party, um, you know, a breakaway. Now, my thinking on this is you can't do that right now. Like you, the uh, somebody somebody said, and I can't remember who, a friend of mine, that it's, it's not a party until there's a crowd. You're not, if you don't have a crowd, you don't have a party. Yeah. So we're not just going to march away with our like self-righteous view, right? It's not possible. But um, we need to be building the kind of infrastructure for something that can potentially split because you cannot actually effectively fight for working class people and fight for a working class political program through the vehicle of a party that is... Uh, that is that is constituted in large part by the capitalist class itself, whose interests are diametrically opposed to that working class. That's right. You've seen people like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and other, you know, one or two percenters in the polling, uh, as far as polling is concerned, uh, push this this notion of unity. And it just doesn't fly anymore because exactly the way that you spelled it out, you know, the, the divisions are materially rooted and grounded and they're blatantly they're very clearly obvious to anyone who's paying any attention. Uh, so smoothing over those those that those divisions with you know cries for unity just falls flat these days. Final topic: You've got to run because not only are you a journalist, but you are an activist as well. You've got meetings to attend, uh, so we've got to let you go. Um, I'll let you comment on that, uh, and you had something to say, but I want to talk about Ra- Ra- Ross uh, Douthat's piece in the uh, New York right. Times endorsing Bernie Sanders. It was a mm-hmm. qualified endorsement. It was an endorsement that perhaps many socialists would. Uh, have some take some exception to. <laughs> uh, I think the the Bernie Sanders he painted is not a Bernie Sanders that I necessarily recognize. This kind of uh, class reductionist, you know, <laughs> um, like sort of anti social justice warrior Bernie Sanders, like you know, as, as though he doesn't espouse every you know like extraordinarily radical social you know reform policy under the sun himself. Um, but what do you what do you, what do you do what do we do with that? The New York Times and Ross Douthat pushing Bernie Sanders. I I won't pretend to know why this phenomenon has occurred in our universe. Like, I don't know why Ross Douthat decided to write that. Um, I've seen people speculate that it was calibrated to, you know, portray Bernie Sanders as a class reductionist and therefore potentially so disunity or whatever. I don't know. I I kind of doubt that. I just I don't have a very I don't have a very paranoid um, like mentality in general. So sometimes I can be a little bit naive about these things, actually. That's my, that's my tendency is to be a little too naive when I ought to be more paranoid. But, um, so I don't know why this, I don't know why this happened. I definitely saw some people who I think ought to know better, um, treating it like it was, um, a good thing. Uh, because, you know, Bernie, Bernie's got this media blackout and like you see somebody in the New York Times praising Bernie Sanders and it's just like share, share, share. Let's get it out there. Um, the truth is that Bernie has moved away from the has been effectively shed this um, like reputation for class reductionism that he came in with Um and he's done that in a way that I find extraordinarily commendable. So he could have shed that reputation in a way that I would not have liked, for instance, by pandering uh, or by, um, you know, like making sort of like surface level appeals to groups on the basis of their identity without having anything to 
back it up. Uh, but he didn't do that. So I've been really heartened to watch Bernie Sanders lead the way in showing us how we can take specific struggles against discrimination and bigotry and racism and sexism, homophobia and so on, and uh, mobilize them toward a common unified working class project like that. He's done his, he and his campaign. And I do give a lot of credit to people on his campaign who are thinking really hard about these questions have been able to do this in a way that doesn't sacrifice not for one moment. The idea that the point of a Bernie Sanders campaign is to unify the broad working class along across lines of social difference, because we are all more similar to each other than we are to those discrete entities that are exploiting the working class and profiting from its labor and, you know, keeping it in abject misery for personal profit, right? So he's been able to do this very effectively. And it feels like a weird throwback for Ross Douthat to come in and be like, you know what I like about that Bernie Sanders guy? He just doesn't even talk about race ever or, you know, abortion ever. That's false. That's patently false. I've heard Bernie Sanders say, for example, here's a very good example. Bernie Sanders does talk about abortion. And he talks about, you know, a woman's right to control her own, you know, her body, her reproductive care, etc. But he also says, and I've heard him say this, he says, this is a man's fight too. the men in this room right now, you need to understand that this is your moment to fight because this issue affects you too. And that's fucking true. Like, that's actually true. And he says that and that's the opposite of pandering to some very surface level idea of, you know, women's empowerment that's at the expense of men. The idea like we're going to empower women and like, like, like screw all the like men who are trying to, you know, who've got their their boots on our throats, which is certainly true to some extent when you look at, you know, who makes abortion laws, right? Right. But it's also the case that the messaging around that encourages people to, like, women to turn to men and think, like, you are a part of the occupying enemy force that is keeping me down. And Bernie what Bernie Sanders is doing is he's saying abortion is an issue. This is an important issue that we're going to have to fight for and it's going to take all of us because it is an issue that affects all of us and and it's a class issue as well and any if you are in the working class if you are a man or woman or a non-binary person abortion rights and abortion access are an issue for you and we are all going to fight for them together and have solidarity so that is the kind of rhetoric that i hear coming from the bernie sanders campaign i don't know where ross out that got this idea that that's not happening he's not paying he's either not paying attention and just like you know writing out of his ass like a lot of these columnists do or i'm you know being naive yet again and he has some sort of you know he's got some sort of diabolical plot that he's carrying out <laughs> i don't think so he's that bright those- i think the ross doubt that that most of us know is just not that not that uh, not that savvy not that bright uh yeah, you're right. There are a lot of people who who should know better. And I, I was praising uh, Rising with Crystal and Cigar earlier in the episode, uh, our chat today. And so I'll I'll end by sort of giving them some some criticism. And I saw Cigar give a sort of monologue, among with other, he's he's not alone, sort of saying, you know, doubt that's onto something. Bernie needs to drop his you know his recent immig- turn on immigration, his rhetorical shift on immigration, and kind of. Drop that nonsense, you know, the nonsense social justice warrior stuff. And he could really, really win the Midwest in a general election or something like that. And and I think they still don't get it. <laughs> I think they still don't get it. I, I see Bernie Sanders' shift in, in immigration as more of a rhetorical one than a shift in his principles. Uh, because I think he's been unabashedly, uh, you know, in favor of, of workers' rights and working people of all, you know, uh, of all nationalities and, and so on and so forth. They just don't understand how it is that principled democratic socialist talking points don't have to skirt the issues 
of race mm-hmm. and gender and and all of the rest of it, right? And, and you, we don't Why have to skirt we? these issues. When we're leaving, if if we do skirt them, we're leaving opportunities on the table because we have the best that's answer. Exactly, that's exactly right. It, I mean, they're, it's they're they're freebies. Why not just take it when you can get it? You know, um, it, we're still making these silly distinctions between you know, between economic issues and identity issues. Now, it's not surprising the way that a lot of the people, the most cynical um, among our opponents in Democratic Party primary races in the past four years, cough, you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, it just made a mockery of that so-called distinction. And so we're still perhaps we have our backs up a little too high. And this is coming from the anti-essentialism guy, right? Mm -hmm. That was always my argument. And that was always the point. The point was always that, like these things are organically connected in a way that we don't have to fall prey to these phony and false distinctions. Right. That's, that's exactly it. It's like, well, I think also we've gone through an evolution as a movement just in the last few years. It's honestly, it's astonishing to me when I think about how much growth our movement has gone through. And I think that when we were first finding our footing, it was actually very important for us to draw a hard line because that was the dominant way that people were talking about identity concerns that not just identity based concerns, but the concerns of people who had any kind of marginalized identity as though they were like completely siloed out and atomized from each other. And that it all was all boiled down to like recognition, right? That was the entire discourse. And so it was very important for us to draw a kind of line in in the sand and say, like, no, we need to talk about the thing that everybody is not talking about, which is class. And I, I still think that that is absolutely critical. And I also think that we are growing as a movement in our skills when it comes to connecting the concerns of marginalized identity groups to our broader project for working class emancipation from capitalism. Like, I think we're just getting better at that as time goes on. And I'm, I'm really in awe, actually, like, it makes me feel a little bit like warm and fuzzy when I think about how, how far we've come in this regard, because I think people are just getting so much better at making these arguments in a way that doesn't sacrifice our core principles. And in fact, it actually advances our agenda. And like you said, um, takes the freebies where they are, right? Because we're the people who actually have the explanations that are going to get us get us somewhere. That's absolutely right. Very encouraging stuff. Bernie Sanders is surging. Warren is tanking. Uh, Buddha judge doesn't have a prayer. Uh, Biden, final words on Biden, because this is this is the most hopeful aspect here. If 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 Bloomberg can peel away Biden's ruling class support, the Biden's uh, supporters are are in large part uh, very sympathetic to Bernie Sanders. Many of them uh, have uh, have you know uh, openly touted Bernie Sanders as their second choice. Should if if Biden were not in the race, so a lot of those uh, Biden supporters uh, are quite all right with Bernie. Not Bernie Bros, perhaps, but they're okay with Bernie. How do we how do we take down Biden? Do we send Tulsi so after got, him? What do we do? It's not going to happen on this high level. Like it's not going to happen on the sort of national political stage, right? Like this is my theory about it is that basically I've canvassed, knocked on doors for Bernie Sanders, and I have met the mythical Biden supporter whose number two is Bernie Sanders. And you got to have a conversation with that person because that person is a low information voter who does not actually understand that Joe Biden 
you know, author, co-authored the 94 crime bill, who doesn't understand that Joe Biden is a warmonger, uh, who doesn't understand that Joe Biden has been coddling finance for his entire career. They just don't know. They don't know this information. And because the media is not going to tell them and they're barely paying attention to the media anyway, they associate him with Barack Obama and they feel nostalgic for Barack Obama and their personal political principles align with Bernie Sanders. And they mistakenly believe that Barack Obama actually looked more like Bernie Sanders than he actually does. And the only way that we're going to reach these people is when we have conversations with them. And I know it's a huge lift. Like, how are we going to have conversations with all of the people who support Joe Biden, who might otherwise support Bernie Sanders? It's scary to me to think about because that's just a lot of people and we don't really have the apparatus for that. Neither the Bernie Sanders campaign nor DSA, which is running an independent campaign, have the apparatus to reach all of them. But I just don't see another way because I don't, I mean, you're right that Bloomberg could take a bite out of Biden's support. But I just, I thought he was going to crater earlier. Like I figured, you know, oh, his other eye is going to explode. And then, you know, who knows what's going to, he's, he's just going to say, he's going to say something that is so ridiculous that it's finally going to sink him. But now he's said all of the, all of the ridiculous things that I can possibly think of that a person could say he has said them and he seems to be doing fine. And it just, we've got to canvas. Like we really just have to knock on doors and talk to people. And I think also some broader network-based organizing, like, Union, uh, un- like labor for Bernie organizing is, is really important to do it just not just on a one on one level, but try to get people in an institutional context where you can get, you know, get a get a few in one fell swoop, hopefully get a union endorsement for Bernie that can actually filter down. You know, those are things that we really need to be working on to turn the tide. But I think a lot of them are gettable. I mean, that's my that's my experience knocking on door. I think I personally have convinced people that Joe Biden is, in fact, very bad and that the person that they think that Joe Biden is actually Bernie. Sanders is. I think I've personally made that distinction clear for people. Um, and we just have to work really hard for the next few months. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. But it, but it, Tulsi, if you're out there and you're listening, next debate, go off queen. <laughs> go off queen. <laughs> go off queen. Do and with that, we've got to we've got to cut it short. Uh, you've got meetings to attend. As I said, not only you are a journalist, socialist journalist extraordinaire, but you are an activist. You're doing the work yourselves. People get out there, make phone calls for Bernie if you can't canvas. If you can find a canvas, do it. Knock on doors. You'll be better for it. The movement will be better for it. And uh, Bernie's going to win this thing. I'm calling. You know can what? I, I'm calling it. Two. Yeah. Oh, good. You're calling it. I'm that's calling that's it. the Adam that you. It you happens know, once you right call, here with Megan Day. <laughs> Once you called AOC uh, endorsing Bernie and then it happened, now I trust Now I trust that if you call something, it's real. So hopefully. But, well, I have two things to say before I get yeah. off. One, um, Micah Utrecht has been demanding that I plug our book. And he's completely <laughs> right because I need to be doing that more. And so I'm going to do it right now. Yes, Micah Utrecht away. and I wrote a book and it is called Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. And um, you can not pre-order it yet to my knowledge, but you can look out for it and it's coming out from Verso in 2020 and you can buy it. And, um, I hope that you will like it. Okay. That's my plug on that. The other thing that we I got, we got to work on that plug, uh, Megan. I mean, I, people, people are going to buy it just because you two are amazing and the book is going to be great, but well, we got, we got, we got time to work on the plug. It's fine. 
Look, here's here's a here's here's my win or lose. We need a democratic socialist movement that is bigger than Bernie Sanders, and you need to be a part of it. And Micah and I have written a book that is contains all of the best and brightest ideas that don't necessarily come from our unique little brains, but come from the movement that has already emerged. And we have condensed them into a crystalline, beautiful little tract that you can consume, and it'll make you feel excited to be a socialist, and it'll make you feel empowered and feel like it's completely possible. And then you will go out and do it, and then we will win. You had okay, me at crystalline. Better? You had me at crystalline. <laughs> I don't think that word's ever come out of my mouth. Uh, so <laughs> kudos on that one. What, what was your second thing you had? My second thing is that it is possible for Americans to phone bank and text bank for Corbin. And yes. I think that we should. So you should be doing that for Bernie if you live in the United States because you live here and you have to because that's the that's the rules. But it's also per our previous conversation about their struggle is our struggle. I mean, we need to literalize that and make that real and put that into practice. So I signed up and like you can do it on Momentum's website, Momentum being the sort of left wing group within the Labor Party that is formed around Jeremy Corbyn. So you can go sign up to be a phone or text banker for Momentum and for Corbyn. And you have approximately like eight days to do that. So I think that you should if you're listening to this. That's right. We're going to see we're going to see a class struggle, social democratic uh, leadership at the helm of a major Western capitalist nation in in our lifetime and not just in our lifetime, but very soon. And should Labor not win, I, I think it's undoubted that the Tories will fail to to to, uh, to win a majority. They will have to form another tenuous coalition. And so either way, we're only up and up, no matter how this, this shakes out. It's really exciting stuff. Everybody get out there. Phone bank. Uh, we have a lot to learn. And uh, the growth potential here for the for the international transatlantic left in particular is uh, is astronomical. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Really Absolutely. excited. Megan Day, thanks so much for joining us on DPS. Look forward to having you back real soon to uh, catch people up on the horse race. All right. Thanks, Adam.